0: We still have quite a bit of material to get to, so we're going to try to get started as soon as possible. know that we've got many that have a long long way to go tonight. Uh, I've been asked by a couple of me where we've gotten this this chart and i I hate to admit it, but it comes from a Google search on Daniel seven. I have no I have no idea I have no idea where. I couldn't figure out what kind of religious source it is so I will not you know you got to be very careful and there's a lot of when you see a lot of uh, artistic views of the apocalypse or Daniel they're really uh, over exaggerated and horrible but this I think this uh, clearly uh demonstrates what we're talking about with this little horn of Daniel 7 with eyes and a mouth this great system that for me and is a representative of, of the lie of the serpent that must be destroyed now um, just a few more points about the Arabs, and I don't I don't want to leave this undone and I would love to get into it in more detail, and we don't have the time this morning to do it. We kind of had to go through and X some comments out. We do want to make it very clear that, that the Arab or Islamic countries referred to as a pricking briar in Ezekiel thirty eight twenty four. Excuse me, not thirty eight, twenty four. I've got my, my reference wrong, but referred to as a pricking briar. And that which will be removed from Israel as an irritant. They do, in fact, have a presence in latter-day events. And I know there's some misunderstanding. I I believe there's some strong misunderstanding regarding those who have more of a traditional view, and we are are promoting a traditional view of of prophecy this morning, that we take the Arabs out of everything. That's not not the case at all. The Arabs, in fact, do play a very strong role in latter-day events. Countries such as, I should say Arab, i got to also clarify that, Arab or Islamic countries. Countries such as Iran, which is known as Persia, will probably include Iraq, Libya, and Ethiopia. These will be a part of the Goggin Confederacy, as listed in Ezekiel 38. As any that curse Israel, any that curse Israel will most certainly meet a very ugly fate. We would understand that the so-called Palestinians, and I say so-called Palestinians because there's no such thing as a Palestinian, the so-called Palestinians and groups such as Hamas and Hezbollah will be dealt with either by Israel before they are invaded by the Goggian host or as a collateral damage when Gog comes down or is being wiped away as a part of the work of Christ and the saints. But it should be realized that other countries, though not particularly friendly to Israel, will not be necessarily aligned against Israel in the great crisis of the last days, as this is indicated in the Scriptures. Uh, According to Isaiah 19 and Daniel 11, Egypt will itself be a a victim of the invasion of of Gog. Um, The governments of the Arabian Peninsula, Sheba and Dedan, the oil producers, are aligned with Tarshish or the British-U.S. alliance when Gog comes down to take a spoil. So there's much more that can be said about this, but we have to recognize that the fact that the Arab or Islamic countries do play a very important role in latter-day events, and they will, in fact, be dealt with. Moving on. Daniel 8. Daniel 8 focuses, and this we're going to move pretty quickly through this. Daniel 8 focuses on the rise of Greece under Alexander and later into the Grecian or eastern aspect of the Roman Empire as the little horn of the goat. Not to be mistaken with the little horn of Daniel 7. Russia, it is our belief, will be the latter-day manifestation of this little horn, which will stand against the prince of princes, as is mentioned in Daniel 825, as Russia's political, religious, and cultural roots are directly derived from Constantinople. As Constantinople is considered the second Rome, Moscow is considered to be the third Rome. We move into the apocalypse. Where we understand that around 96 AD, Christ delivered unto the Apostle John prophetic imagery that would provide a detailed, telescopic picture of events as it would impact the lives and understanding of the faithful soon after John's time all the way to the return of Christ into the millennium age, or millennial age, with a peak into the eighth millennial day when God will be all in all. This is what we call the continuous historical interpretation of the apocalypse. This is our unamitted Christadelphian heritage. The symbols found in Daniel continue here. And in Revelation 12, we have details regarding Daniel's fourth iron Roman power or fourth beast that is here mentioned as a dragon. In Revelation 12, here the dramatic and world-changing transition from paganism to an adulterated form of Christianity is chronicled due to the efforts of Constantine in the 4th century A.D. out of Constantinople. Revelation 13 continues with the chronicling of the giving of power by the Roman authority that was set up in Constantinople, the dragon, to the ten horned beasts that had risen out of the sea, the Mediterranean area and was an amalgamation of the lion, bear, and leopard seen in Daniel 7. Again, remember how closely these things are related to one another. This is a further description of the rise of Catholic religious power that would be centered in Rome. Later in the chapter, Revelation 13, we see the rise of the beast of the earth, the earth being the European continent, symbolic of the rise of the Holy Roman Empire that would protect and demand obedience to the papal system and would unite religious and political influence, emperor and Rome, the two horns that you see on its head, into one dreadful and powerful system, with the political systems of Europe eventually becoming becoming subservient to the Pope, with a revival of of old Roman imperialism, with a Pope as its head, the image of the beast. And again, why does it matter? What does this have to do with service to Yahweh? we have to understand that this is a grand, a magnificent arch enemy to Christ and the saints. And as it is our enemy, as it is Christ's enemy, as it is God's enemy, we have to understand the development of the system, understand how to be apart from it, and to warn others as well. And understanding that we will be a part of its grand demise in the end times. This is a part of our hope. It's a part of our hope. Finally, in Revelation 17 and into chapter 18, this horrid and blasphemous religious system, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, passes into its final stage. Having long been stripped of political power, this Roman religious system, as defined as a harlot, continues in her adulterous ways to deceive and influence the nation's as she rides on the back of the European beast. This is the enemy that we need to be looking for and understand. She has long been drunk with the blood of the saints, and the time of their vengeance, hopefully our vengeance upon her, is at hand. In the time of great crisis, when her Goliath-like champion, the Russian Confederacy, is destroyed on the mountains of Israel, the European nations will regroup an attempt to counter the offensive led by Zion's new king, who they will label as the Antichrist. But to no avail. As the angel of Revelation 18.2 cries, please turn that up, Revelation 18.2. Revelation 18 and 2. This angel cries with a mighty voice. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And as hymn 143 stated that we read earlier, see the papal idols falling, worshiped once, but now abhorred. Now, throughout the prophets, we are provided with awe-inspiring details as to the nature and beauty of the kingdom of God that is to supersede the kingdom of men. In the book of Isaiah especially, we see a concentration of unambiguous visions. Isaiah chapter 2, 2-4, through four, memory verses of ours describe the new religious and political capital of the world as Jerusalem. Isaiah 2-4, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The inhabitants of the earth will joyfully flock to this city to learn of God's ways. The passage goes on to describe the peaceful state of the kingdom. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. In Isaiah 11, after describing in beautiful terms the passive nature of once carnivorous and deadly beast toward the lamb, cow, and little child, we read in verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The latter portion of the book of Ezekiel gives a vivid description of the magnificent temple and its service. That will be erected under the administration of Christ. We are also given a specific map as to the massive land grant that will be rewarded, and this is just this doesn't even show the whole thing, according to the promise, to the natural descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people who have been redeemed and restored to the land. This leads us to comment upon the central role that the natural descendants of Abraham play in the plan of God. Past, present, in future. And as important as the Jewish people are and their fate, this has also become an unfortunate, a very unfortunate battleground for us. Though the gross failings and severest of punishments of the Jews is recorded for our learning, we are constantly reminded that they are in fact God's people and witness to his existence and his plan for this earth. Scripture after Scripture explains in great detail their their complete restoration. The whole house of Israel, Ephraim and Judah, as a remnant to the land of promise. Their future repentance, future prosperity, their future exalted and preeminent position over the Gentile nations, and their restoration to true favor with God. There are over 300 references cited in the Index Rerum. If you have an Index Rerum, over 300 references cited to attest to the fact of Israel and of their future glory. Israel, on a national basis, is not chosen due to any numbers or any inherent qualities of righteousness. But as we are told in Deuteronomy 7 8, that because the Lord loved you and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers, Ezekiel 36, 22. I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy sake. And we read the wonderful passage from Jeremiah 46, 28. For I will make a full end of all the nations, whether I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet, yet, will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. To correct literally means chastisement with the object of instructing. In 70 A.D., due to the rejection of the Messiah and their complete faithlessness, and as prophesied by Moses, the Jewish commonwealth was completely wiped off the face of the map. It was miraculous that the Jews continued to hold an identity and hold together as a distinct people, despite the horrid pur- uh, persecutions that they received, along with true believers, at the hands of the papal system. It just, just wasn't the true believers that suffered at the hands of the papal system. So did, so did the Jew. With the passing of time, we had the Spanish Inquisition, the Russian pogroms, and of course, more recently, the Holocaust. Through great persecution, God still preserved the national identity of his people. In 1948, we witnessed the gloriously thrilling establishment of a Jewish state and a continued partial return of Jewry to the land which provides token proof as to God's workings in this earth and as evidence that he will certainly perform his word in restoring, as we read throughout the prophets, and it hasn't happened yet, the whole house of Israel under obedience to and knowledge of the Messiah, their king, Judah and Ephraim. And the current state of Israel is a required precursor to the great and terrible day of the Lord when the controversy of Zion comes to a head. But still, whether it be the Jews in the land or those still scattered around the world, whether secular or religious, and they do not have true religion yet, they are yet to have true faith in the Abrahamic covenant and to accept the true identity of their Messiah. This helps us to understand that the divine instruction of Israel, the divine instruction of Israel through chastisement and punishment, is not yet complete. Though we are to wish nothing evil upon Israel, we are to wish nothing evil upon Israel. Just as spiritual Israel is to be refined through the final process of Christ's judgment, we are going to go through a a refining process in that day of judgment. Many are called, but few are chosen so too is national Israel spoken of as going through a final refining process. The Gogian invader is to cover the land as a cloud, and in Zechariah 13.8, as has been believed by Christadelphians, that two parts shall be cut off and die. There can be no mistake that the context of the chapter of Zechariah 13 and this passage is speaking of the Jews living in the land. And as horrible as this is to contemplate, And if we could be wrong about anything, we would hope to be wrong about this. But the Scriptures speak plainly. The outcome of this, the outcome of this refining process is one of the most beautifully dramatic outcomes found in the Scriptures. It is wonderful what comes out of this horrid, the horrid events to come upon Israel on the face of this earth. Verse 9 of Zechariah 13 states, And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and I will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. And in Isaiah 1.25 we're told and I will turn my hand upon thee purely purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin or alloy." Also, Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and we're not going to read this at this time, describe this along with many other other passages. When Christ comes to deliver them, Israel, then will be fulfilled the saying as found in Matthew 23, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Their response, as we are told in Zechariah 12.10, And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, And they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Just when the despicable, arrogant, and hateful nations, with Rome right behind them, think they have finally taken care of the problem of Israel once and for all. Just when the Jews around the world watch in horror as their beacon of light in the land has seemingly been extinguished. Rising from the ashes of conquest and lovingly rescued by their Messiah comes a nation more powerful, more terrifying than any other power that that has ever been on the face of this earth, apart from the immortalized Lord of hosts. Zechariah 12, 6. In that day, Will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheath, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. Jeremiah fifty one twenty. Thou, this being Israel, thou art my battle axe. This is Yahweh speaking. Thou art my battle axe, or hammer, and weapons of war. For thee, with thee, will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee I will destroy kingdoms. Isaiah 60:12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish; yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. So as we watch on the evening news every night, and we see the terrible things said about Israel, the lies, and the deceit the foolishness and the ignorance, we have to understand that there is a glorious flip side to what we see happening and the horrible things that I personally believe are about to happen. For the Jews that are still living outside of Israel, we understand as Ephraim, that they will be brought back to the land as well, but not before, as is described in Ezekiel 20, I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. Ephraim and Judah, as vividly described in Ezekiel 37, will finally be united under their king. As the Apostle Paul declared, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So to close our consideration of the sure word of prophecy, we note that Psalm 72 provides a wonderful detail of the righteousness, equity, mercy, and firmness of Zion's king and the prosperity of his kingdom. Verse 2 of Psalm 72 tells us, He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. Verse 7 tells us, In his days shall the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. The Apostle Paul informs us in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians that Christ will reign until all enemies are put under His feet, the last enemy being death itself. This period is literally defined for us as 1,000 years in Revelation 28, a reign shared with the saints. At the end of the 1,000 years, the kingdom is returned to the sole authority of the Father. Sin's flesh has been once and for all cut off. Death completely eliminated, and God will be all in all. For as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Does prophecy matter? You bet it does. Our walk. Seasons of Comfort. Volumes 1 and 2. Nazareth Revisited, The Life of Jesus, The Ways of Providence, Help and Comfort from the Scriptures, Brother Pete, Conviction and Conduct, Portrait of the Saint, A Time to Speak, Brother Fair, Dr. Thomas' Life and Work, if we want to know how our earlier brethren thought and how they acted, Life and Works of Thomas Williams, Um, Early Volumes of the Christadelphian Advocate, Early Volumes of the Christadelphian, Early Volumes of of the Herald put out by Brother Thomas, Unamended statement of faith, the commandments of Christ. And we know that that many of you have your own favorites as to to various pieces of literature to to help us in our, our daily battles with the flesh. We have sometimes heard it mentioned that walk is the most important aspect of our beliefs that should be studied and discussed. We have heard others say or imply that it is subjects such as atonement or prophecy that are the most important. And that a good walk will naturally flow from a proper understanding of these subjects. What we need to understand is that all of it is important to acceptable service to God. And we consider the concept of balance. And I'm not the one to give um, go off on uh, an exhortation here on the subject of balance itself, but it's you know it's something that we are constantly just struggling with. But we also have to know that there is a discernment to understand what are weightier matters, and what are not. But walk is no value to God if it is not preceded and continually accompanied by an understanding of His revealed plan and purpose. But as we stated earlier, our knowledge is of no value if not accompanied by the required application of such truth. It is our works that will be the final assessment at the judgment seat. But such works are the fruit of the truth correctly applied and though a knowledge and understanding of God's truth does directly facilitate our actions a righteous walk certainly does not naturally flow out of us as a correct walk is so extremely opposed to the natural inclinations of our sin flesh nature even with all the wisdom that one can imagine being given to Solomon he still failed miserably and as Paul understood, and this has been referred to several times this weekend, First Corinthians 9:27, "But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached others, I myself should be cast away." So Paul understood this great struggle as with all the wisdom and understanding that Paul had. He still fought the flesh. It takes a great deal of work. diligence in humility and realization of what we are by nature, in the deceitful condition of our hearts. And above all this, complete love and trust in God is required. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Taken out of the law. Proverbs 3, 5 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. As one of our brethren at this summer's Bible school stated many times, and I, once I say it, you know what I'm talking about. Easy to say, hard to do. Easy to say, hard to do. In John 3, 2, let's go there. John, 1 John 3, 2. Three verse verses actually 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth purify himself, even as he is pure. Every man that hath this hope in Him, in Christ, purifieth himself, even as he, or Christ, is pure. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, we read, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, which means logical. To be reasonable means to be logical. It is our logical service, based upon all the things that have been revealed to us. The great salvation that we have, it is our logical service to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Based upon the hope that we have, the hope that is given to us, we therefore have the responsibility, following the justification that we have been given, The imputation of Christ's righteousness upon us through his shed blood with actual righteousness of our faithful walk. We must follow this imputation of Christ's righteousness upon us with actual righteousness of a faithful walk. The word purifyeth as used in 1 John literally means to make clean. We must reflect in our walk, in our service, the grace that has been extended to us. As baptized believers, we are under the constitution of righteousness. And therefore, we must act like it. We have to act like it. After dealing with the legal aspects of justification for condemnation and the constitution of sin in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul then follows in Romans 6 with the manner of life that should be practiced by those so justified. In verse 11 of the sixth chapter of Romans, and this whole chapter is one giant exhortation along this line, Paul says, "Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments, which means tools, of righteousness. Or excuse me, of unrighteousness unto sin." but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In verse 18, being made free from sin, you become the servants of righteousness. As we are to be instruments of righteousness, we understand that we are to be tools in God's hand. Service to Yahweh in 2011. The tool does not act on its own but does the will of the one who holds or controls that tool. Whose right is it to define the parameters and works of righteousness? It is Yahweh's prerogative alone. But every time we adapt worldly practices into our lifestyle, every time I adapt worldly practices into my lifestyle, and then make the fatal mistake of creating justifications for it, We have put ourselves in the place of God and have therefore become the definers of what is according to righteousness and what is not. Some brethren misuse the principle of liberty in Christ as a license to exercise their own sense of free will and to participate in what earlier brethren scripturally understood as sinful or inappropriate. But what these libertarians, what I would call libertarians and not in a positive sense, view as outdated restrictions. But the liberty we are given is from the dominion of the sin constitution and the shackles that that personal sin creates for us. as Well, for the, for the Jews, it was the burdens of the law of Moses. Such liberty has no reference whatsoever to live our lives with a relaxed approach to adapt certain degrees of worldliness into our lives with a self-confident attitude that we can handle it. Brother so-and-so might not be able to handle it, but I can handle it. This is a form of humanistic thinking, human rights, frog-like, the frog-like democratic influence that has crept into the body. This practicing of a one-foot-in-the-world and one-foot-in-the-truth lifestyle is more of the norm than the exception because it makes living the truth more palatable, giving allowance for what is pleasing to the flesh while clinging to a form of religion in the attempt to satisfy the conscience. I can have my cake and I can eat it too. But by our baptisms, we become servants. Oh, I thought I put a... I lost a slide in there somehow, but we'll go on. By our, our service to God, we are told we become servants as being baptized into Christ. The Apostle Paul, in the greetings of his various epistles, repeatedly stated that he was a servant of God in Christ. We read in in, in Revelation that the, the Apocalypse is given to the servants of Christ. The word is from the Greek doulos, which means bond, servant, or literally slave. Paul understood that he was a slave to the will and direction of God and his son, as we are to be. Now think about that. We are to be slaves. Now what is the duty of a slave? To please his master. And to be ready to carry out every command. His time and effort is not his own. From sunrise to sunset he is ready and willing to serve. But such slavery is not according to the oppressive and demeaning nature of the repression of men by other men. We have heard the call of Yahweh and his truth. And we have willingly submitted ourselves to a wonderfully merciful and eternally beneficial order. Our service is one is to one who loves us and cares for us and asks nothing of us that is unreasonable or that will do harm to us in a spiritual sense. And if we truly love him, who we serve, as Christ stated, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now what are the commandments of Christ? We're not... Don't have the time this morning to go through all of that, but we have 53 of them listed with scriptural reference in the back of our statement of faith. The responsibility of our service, of our submission, is total. As we read in Romans 12, we are to be a living sacrifice, which draws upon the lesson of the burnt sacrifice, that which was totally devoted and burnt up to God. It is the reasonable or logical expectation that, an outcome for God's servants based upon the great mercy and glorious hope that has been extended to us. And we know that Christ even tells us even after we do all that we can in our service that we are still unprofitable servants. In Ecclesiastes 12:13, we read, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is what of man. Can anybody fill in the blank? whole duty of man. Christ was our utmost example of serving Yahweh of this in his complete submission to the Father's will, without sin, even unto death. Do we really understand what such service means as we live our lives in these very evil last days? One of the commands given us is that we are to be strangers and pilgrims, set apart from the general stream of humanity. But does Being a stranger and a pilgrim merely imply that we have and maintain different beliefs from the world, that we don't vote or serve in the military, or is something much more commanded of us? And that's been talked about this weekend as well. Is something more commanded of us? Our servitude to righteousness doesn't merely imply abstaining from the worst evils that this world has to offer. Adultery, fornication, murder, wrath, the works of the flesh listed in Galatians 5 which we are, in fact, to abstain from. There is much more, though. There is much more in our daily experience that might not be of the worst evils, but nonetheless is still of the flesh. So much of what we may be attracted to may appear as harmless, and there may be no direct scriptural prohibition against it. In such cases, the incorrect question to ask is, what is wrong with it? And we believe that the correct question to ask is, what is right about it? How does this serve our Lord? In such, case, Moving on, the Pharisees themselves made a good show of not being as other sinners in their abst- abstention from various evils and, and gained great satisfaction from such a fact. But the Pharisees found loopholes, didn't they? To do as they wished, and they didn't always practice what they preached. And though they made a show of righteousness, they did not do it to the glory of God, but to the glorification of their own selves. Though we hope to personally benefit from acceptable service to God, it should never be lost sight of that our duty is to do glory to Yahweh's name. The overriding theme of the scriptures. Our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, and that it is to be total and truly sincere. As Christ warned in Matthew chapter 5, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In another place Christ commands, Be therefore perfect or complete, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Unfortunately, we are all too aware that we do fail on a daily basis as we are bluntly reminded by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verses 10, or verse 10, and then leading into chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, at the end of the first chapter of John, it states, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because of this, it is imperative that we daily utilize the great blessing of having a great high priest in which to approach our Heavenly Father. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the, propi- excuse me, the propitiation for our sins. As is demonstrated on Brother Bachman's chart over here, we have those vexing principles illustrated as stumbling blocks or stumbling stones of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life that continually hamper our walk and service to Yahweh on the path to Eden. Our service cannot be polluted or hampered by the incompatible principles espoused and manifested by the world. And as Christ has commanded us to be a light to this dark world, we cannot be such if we allow the darkness of this world to dampen, even to the slightest degree, the obvious nature of such God-given illumination. As has been recently mentioned to us, darkness and light, black and white, can only combine to make shades of gray and there is nothing gray about God's truth. As the believers were bluntly warned by James, in chapter 4, verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There's no gray area here. No ifs, ands, or buts. It is impossible to serve Yahweh acceptably if He views us as adulterers and adulteresses. How comfortable are we, how willing are we to risk our lives in blurring the lines between the world and ourselves? And consider the blunt commands given to us by Christ in His Sermon on the Mount, which has also been mentioned. Comparing ourselves with the teaching and examples of Scripture or even charting the changes in attitudes and practices compared to 20... 50 or 100 years ago, within the household, if we are honest, will reveal a terrifying, a terrifying perspective as to how much more tolerant and reflecting we are of the world in all aspects. Think back on the words and examples of brethren long ago and not so long ago. Read the old Christadelphian advocates, read the old Christadelphians, and you will see a zeal, a self-sacrificing devotion. To the cause of the truth, and a clarity of belief and moral practice that should make us ashamed, it should make me ashamed. Read the articles, the editorials, and even the great exhortation that will be found in the intelligence ecclesial news sections, and we will find that something has drastically changed. We need to stop dismissing our early examples as relics from an outdated time and understand that the old paths are to be embraced and not forgotten. The truth itself never changes, and it is not moldable, it is not moldable to fit the changing times. But most certainly our relationship and approach to the truth as a body has changed over the years, as we have changed with the world, having included more and more of the world into our lives and into our thinking. Again, we don't have to do the worst things that the scriptures speak about to be worldly. Putting ourselves and our community's connection to Yahweh and His Son in serious question in these last days, no matter what doctrines we claim to still hold. Like those James condemned in the first century, how guilty are we of spiritual adultery or unfaithfulness? Considering where we stand in relation to the nearness of Christ's return in our position in this Laodicean epic we should be we would be very foolish. If we think that the blunt warnings and condemnations delivered to the children of Israel or those given to the first century ecclesias for their unfaithfulness do not also apply to the latter day ecclesia, if not more so. And the scary part is they all thought that they were doing just fine. The children of Israel, the early ecclesias, they thought they were doing good. Understanding that Christ's return is at the door, it is a matter of life and death. It really is a matter of life and death for us to fearfully examine where we stand. Continuing on, it is important for us in our service to Yahweh to always be cognizant of what is required of us. We have mentioned that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Such is all-encompassing. Connected to this, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. Such is to be our primary goal and the end objective in our service crowding out time-consuming service in the pursuit of career, success, and personal pleasure and leisure. We do, we do need to work for our daily bread, and we are not suggesting there's no time for relaxation, for without it we would literally go mad. But where do our continual affections and purpose lie? Now this is a very difficult thing to contemplate as the modern world forces upon us, and we allow it, so many distractions and instantaneous gratifications. Brother Al had a very good graphic that he put in his class uh, on on Saturday that demonstrated all the different things that we have to distract us. Brother, the world is falling apart, but yet we, we have no shortage of things to give us instant gratification. God did not design us to indulge in these things and still be capable to serve Him acceptably. We're not designed for it. It's that simple. And again, where do our continual affections and purpose lie? Well, we will be able to answer that question very soon for ourselves before Christ at his judgment seat. And he will not be interested in how we try to justify or our, he will not be interested in how we try to justify our indulgence in these things. So what does God require of us? What does He require of us as servants? Such is beautifully and simply stated in Deuteronomy 10. Turn it up, please. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 and 13. Added, so with this, what is beautifully stated, it says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I commanded thee this day for thy good. Micah 5.8 reflects this as well. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Added to complete love and devotion to Yahweh, we are also commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. Directly related to this is what we know as the golden rule. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets as spoken by Christ. We are allowed no retaliation for wrongs or abuses done against us and, in fact, are commanded by Christ to love our enemies. Matthew 5, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. Easy to say. Very hard to do. In Galatians 6, 10, the Scriptures command us to do good unto all men. But here the focus is made very clearly. Especially unto them who are of the household of faith. In 1 Peter 1.22 we, we read, Seeing ye have purified your souls, and obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned, unfeigned means without hypocrisy, love, or Philadelphia, of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, such love does not include capitulation to, tolerance, or fellowship of error as to not hurt anyone's feelings as a matter of principle, agape, or love, desires the utmost spiritual welfare and the eventual salvation of others apart from personal feelings, while at the same time it hates every false way, understanding that such leads to death and violates our first and foremost command to love God. It is a love that is not natural, but grows out of a shared commonality or fellowship of unified acceptance of the principles of the truth. We are not to love the world, and we are not to love that which is false. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And such love is not to descend to the respecter of persons, where the more natural emotional level known as filio drives who we think is and who is not worthy of our respect and affection. Unfortunately, as we stand here in 2011, this critical principle of love or agape towards our brethren, has been turned upside down. Instead of the love of God and stringent adherence to His commands coming first, there is a widespread exaltation of the love of brethren, or the love of man, which is what it amounts to, coming first. We often see the more filial and social levels of affection take precedent, making allowances for what God does not allow so that friendships, family ties, and goodwill under the umbrella of fellowship might be preserved regardless of the commands of God. Our love and fellowship is to be based, driven, and preserved upon shared and unified understanding of God's doctrines and belief and application. Philippians 2.2 Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And there's many other verses to go with this. We briefly need to state here that the subject of fellowship is a critical part of acceptable service to Yahweh and it defines what we believe and what we do and do not have commonality with. It is not an elusive ideal, as some contend, but a scriptural command. We cannot claim to hold the truth, to love God, and love our brethren while we allow the free run of error. Though there has been a modern tendency to broaden the scope of fellowship and to lessen the responsibility we have and its enforcement. We cannot escape the scriptural commands given to us regarding its principles. Now, the challenges in serving, and concluding here, the challenges to serving Yahweh in 2011 are great. But this offers us no excuse. We have no excuse to shirk the responsibilities that we have accepted through baptism. First of all, we are to endure unto the end and there's much more that can be added here, but this is just a summary. We are to continue in the faith. We are to contend, which actually means to agonize for the faith once delivered into the saints. We are to hold fast the traditions, our Christadelphian heritage. Hold fast that which is good. Practice pure religion. Visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and, keep, and to keep unspotted from the world. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Walk according to the old paths. Watch for the Lord's return. Watch and defend the household against falsehood. Speak and exhort and rebuke when necessary. Judge not and judge. Also judge righteous judgment. And just to comment on that briefly. Judge not means do not presume to stand in the place of Christ to pass final condemnation on others, while at the same time we are to judge righteous judgment in the discernment of right and wrong and our relationship to it. Be ready always to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you. And fear ye not the reproach of man, neither be ye afraid of the reviling. Which comes with the faithful service to Yahweh. This comes, whether it be the reproach of the world or the reproach we receive, we receive from those within the household. As we have already stated, the challenges of our times are overwhelming, but the time is short. We have been given a great and wonderful hope. the hope, the faith, comprised of doctrines that cover every aspect of salvation from sin and death, hope for the future, discernment of events, both past and future, and instruction in how we are to manifest the righteousness of God and serve Him. As is stated in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Though there is no doubt Disagreement and maybe even some anger to some of the things we have expressed or the way we've approached it. Such has not been our intention and hopefully it is understood why we have done so. We have taken a broad, broad stroke and touched on a great many things in order to provide a full view picture of our understanding of the faith in the last days and our service to Yahweh, which is to be in sincerity and in truth. The days are evil. And unfortunately, the foundations, fundamentals of the truth and its simplicity are not talked about and lauded as much as they once were. And we are seeing the fruits of that neglect. Either we think we are too smart for the basics, we have itching ears, or just don't have the time. Whatever the reasons, the result we see is confusion and strife. Now all we can say in closing is what is expressed by the Apostle Peter. And we hope to add special emphasis to all of those things that have been spoken of for the past few days of, of speaking of those worthies of old. But in 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end of, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. And we very much appreciate your time this morning.